Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Catholic Talk Show. We have a very important show for you today. We're going to be talking about Russia invading Ukraine. That's right. We're joined by a Ukrainian Catholic priest and Jesuit and my cousin, Father Andre, to talk about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We're going to look into the political and religious background of this invasion, Putin's motivations, and so much more, and how you can help the Ukrainian people in this time of their need. Make sure to stick with us. So yeah, we have an excellent show and really some historical background and really diving in deep to some of the tensions that are are clearly present throughout history, but also what's happening right now. And to have Father Andre, Father Andre, welcome, brother. It's really a blessing to have you on the show to get your unique perspective on what's happening. And Father Andre, before we get started, I learned something brand new uh, in preparation for the show, and it's the proper pronunciation of what we're constantly hearing is Kiev. But but it's actually Kyiv, or if you could help me pronounce it uh, more properly. Sure. Glory to Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for having me and for giving this space to talk about the tragedy that's unfolding mm-hmm. in Ukraine right now. The correct pronunciation, the Ukrainian pronunciation of the city is Kyiv. Kyiv. So Kyiv is the Russian pronunciation, and along with Ukrainian independence, uh, they've put forward the new or the correct Ukrainian pronunciation of the city, uh, which has been accepted in airports and various newspapers and things. So you'll see it now spelled as K-Y-I-V Kyiv. Kyiv. And I'm so appreciative of that because that, that's a good way to start in proper respect to the city and the Ukrainian people. Yeah, and I think it's- an Yeah, I really, really appreciate that. And it's important thing to think about is that the, the Russian pronunciation shows how Russia's propaganda tries to control the narrative and tries to dictate to the rest of the world how to think about Ukraine, if the rest of the world ever thinks about Ukraine outside of times of war, that is, you know, but uh, to dictate to Ukraine how they should think about themselves, too. That's right. So, Father Andre, uh, again, really, this is something that I've wanted to do for a long time is have you on the show. And I wish it could have been under better circumstances. But Father Andre is my cousin, uh, second cousin, technically, but uh, my cousin, um, he is a Ukrainian right Jesuit Catholic priest. Um, he has stu- he's been studying in Rome for the last six years. Now he's at Notre Dame, uh, finishing his um, uh, education there. He has a licentiate from the Orientale, so he really is very qualified to speak on this. And again, I wish he could have been on something you know on terms that are a little bit more pleasant, but. Uh, Thank you for coming on. Really exciting. You know, you've been in my prayers every day uh, for you and your priesthood. So please introduce yourself to everyone here. Sure. Thanks again so much. Uh, I'm excited to be here. Glad to be here. Obviously, it's under very poor and tragic circumstances. But I think one of the best things we can do in the situation that's unfolding is to speak the truth and to learn more with historical accuracy what has preceded this war and conflict, what are some of the motivations that underlie it, and how the truth can really set us free to understand uh, what is unfolding also morally. So that I think is important. I'm grateful just for the space to be able to do that with you and with your viewers and listeners. Uh, Yeah, my name is Father Andri. I'm a Cleveland native. So uh, deep dyed, also Cleveland sports fan for what that's worth. I've lived all over the world, but that, that part of me has never, never died. So I'm 
committed to my hometown and, and still have a very big soft spot for it. Uh, I entered the Jesuits after studying at the University of Notre Dame as an undergraduate um, year after that and have spent time all around the world really during my training. Uh, during 11 years of my formation before I became a priest, before I was ordained, I had a, a mission in 10 different countries over those 11 years. So some were longer, some were shorter, obviously, but just to give you some idea. Um, and most recently, as you said, I was in Rome where I completed two degrees in theology, one in preparation for ordination at the Gregorian University, and then a licentiate in Eastern Christian patristic theology at the Pontifical Oriental Institute. Uh, I'm now back in the sweet and homey Midwest uh, at Notre Dame, where I am pursuing a doctorate in what we call historical theology. So church fathers and medieval theology, and my special interest is the relationship between the Latin West and the Greek or Byzantine East. That's outstanding. You know, the, the sense of patristics and your focus on the Eastern fathers and, and your expertise in the Eastern fathers, I think is going to give us a really unique perspective about the history of Christianity as it relates to the current situation that, that we're now looking at in the Ukraine and this invasion. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I think that there are um, important historical roots that have to be investigated patiently, objectively, you know, and wanting to get that kind of objective and unbiased perspective on things in order to respect the facts of history uh, and then what that implies for the current situation. So, yeah, I hope so. I mean, my expertise is modest. You know, I'm still finishing, but uh, I do hope that there's something I can contribute knowing this world, you know, firsthand. Uh, as Ryan mentioned, I am a Ukrainian Greek Catholic priest, so I'm a bit of an unusual breed in that I belong to the Jesuits, but I am an Eastern Rite priest. Uh, and there are some of us around the world, uh, some places more and some places less. Uh, there's a decent handful here in the United States, for example, who are bi-ritual and a smaller group that are actually Eastern Rite by their canonical belonging or what we call ascription. Uh, so I belong to that latter category, and hopefully that kind of firsthand experience also helps people to understand better and have a little more sympathy for what's going on. So I think that's a good place really to start talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, is looking at, you, you mentioned that you're a Ukrainian Greek Catholic priest. Let's talk a little bit about the, the religious origins of the Ukrainian people and how that is so tied to the, their national identity. And that goes back to St. Volodymyr in the late um, 980s, I believe, and his conversion. That really is, I think, the kind of national defining moment of the Ukrainian people. Also, it does have an influence in a big part in the kind of uh, the, the Ruski mere view of how they are have an entitlement to Ukraine. So there is some kind of there is a really deep connection to that. Father Andrei, would you talk a little bit about that and, and the, the conversion of the Ukrainian people? Sure. So that's a really good point, and I think an essential moment of history. And I think the important thing to underline is that's a shared moment of history. Mm -hmm. It's not a history that belongs to any one people mm. exclusively, but is a shared history. Amen. Because Prince Vladimir the Great, as he's called now, who's also recognized as a saint, when he received baptism and converted to Christianity in 988, he was the leader of a kingdom called Kievan Rus. And Kievan Rus was the kingdom of the Eastern Slavic peoples with its center in Kiev. But that culture was not Ukraine specifically. It was not Russia specifically. It was not Belorussia or Belarus specifically, but it was a kind of precursor culture 
of the Eastern Slavs that eventually grew into these distinct groups. So all Eastern Slavs really trace their Christian faith to that baptism of St. Volodymyr. Uh, and it is a defining moment because with the coming of Christianity to the Eastern Slavs came also the written word, Byzantine culture, thought, monastic life. And so all of those things came to this people which had not experienced that uh, before and did not have those cultural bases previously. So I think the essential point is really, yes, Volodymyr's baptism is a very important point of reference, but it doesn't belong exclusively to any of the Eastern Slavs. It's a common root, a common baptism. That, however, doesn't exclude it being shared by different peoples over the course of history. Yeah, that would be like almost looking at the the history of the the French, the Germans, the um, Luxembourgese, whomever in Western Europe, and saying they all go back, and it's really all because of the Merovingian baptism, and that's just one thing, and that's where all these countries started. History is a lot more complex than that. History is very circuitous in the route that it takes with the tides and forces of history creating empires and changing borders. It's not so static as a map. When you look at a map, you think, okay, this is just how it is. It's a lot more nebulous than that. And I think it's important to note that what you said, Father Andre, is that it's not a it's not the same as you would look at it as a nation state today as would have been experienced back then with the, the Kievian Rus converting um, at that time. And I, yeah, love, I, I love reflecting on the, the dynamism and the dynamic nature of the growth of evangelization and the, and the growth of the mystical body of Christ. And what you mentioned, Father Andrea, is, is that oneness, you know, and it's something that we still enjoy in the universal church today, the Catholic church today, is our oneness with Ukraine, the Ukrainian Catholics. Can you speak a little bit more to that, that oneness and, and what we enjoy even still today and why we need to uh, express that solidarity, especially now? Sure. You know, I think Pope Francis has reminded us a lot of times during his pontificate that everything is connected. Yes. And another way of putting that is that solidarity is a virtue you have to exercise, like any virtue has to be exercised to be real, to not atrophy, to not die. And dramatic moments like this, I think, call us to become more aware of that reality that solidarity can't be simply words. It can't be simply a fellow feeling, but that to be a virtue, it really calls us to act. So to kind of try to tie the history to that a little bit, you know, one thing to realize is when St. Volodymyr accepted baptism and Kiev and Rus began to become Christian, uh, the church was united. We hadn't yet suffered the great schism, which also in itself, you know, has been evaluated as not as important in breaking up the relations between the Latin West and the Greek East as it had previously be consi been considered. Uh, there were Latin Rite Catholics who were present in the territory of Rus even at that time. So there was a stronger sense of unity, even though Kiev and the Rus accepted Christianity in the Byzantine enculturation, we might say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That Kiev and the Rus more or less came to an end in the year 1240, when the Mongols conquered Kiev and destroyed the city. And the various principalities that had made up Kiev and the Rus then were kind of separated and broken apart. And they began to take on uh, very different histories and destinies, we might say. Uh, those in the center around Kiev and also further west in what we would call Galicia or Volyn, so moving toward Poland, uh, they were taken underneath uh, the Polish and Lithuanian states and commonwealths over the course of the next number of centuries, and so had strong contact with and were really part of the European reality. 
And in the midst of all of that, at the end of the 16th century, for various complicated reasons that we can talk about maybe in another show at greater length, um, the Metropolitan Bishop of Kiev and uh, other bishops with him who were part of his ecclesiastical province, they decided that they wanted to officially re-enter union with Rome. So over the course of those centuries, the distance between Constantinople and the nature of the break between Constantinople and Rome became more formal, more obvious. But for various reasons, at the end of the 16th century, the Ukrainian uh, bishops or this metropolia of Kiev decided it wanted to re-enter union with Rome officially. And so that was done with the Union of Brest in 1596, which reestablished official hierarchical relationships between the bishops and the people in Ukraine and the Holy See. And so really from that moment forward, more than 420 years now, the Ukrainian Catholics have lived in communion and solidarity with the global Catholic Church. And that's been a blessing for the Ukrainian church. And we hope also that our particular church can share its riches as a blessing with the global Catholic church. Mm -hmm. You know, it's important to note that the Ukrainian Greek Catholic church is the second largest Catholic church, mm -hmm. Catholic right after the Latins. I mean, it is much more important than people would typically consider. Uh, you know, you think of, it's easy to think of Eastern Europe as an American or as a Western European as over there and unimportant and small little countries, you know, Moldova and Transistria, like places you've never heard of that seem foreign. Ukraine is the largest country by area in Europe. I mean, it's an enormous country. It has as much population as Spain. It's 40 million people, give or so. Um, it, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church is second only to the, the Latin Church. It is very important in the union of the church and in the, in the history and geopolitics of the world. And, and it's unfortunate to think, well, Russia is just taking over this another little tiny country, just like little parts of Georgia or a little part of here or there. No, Ukraine is a massive major player throughout all of history. And I think that the more that people can start to understand that, the more they can really understand the, the nature of the Ukrainian people and of this particular conflict right now. Now, Father Andrew, you did mention something I think that was really important was the Mongol invasion of 1240. For Westerners, the Mongol invasions are critically and almost criminally under considered uh, the impact they had on the world and how they really changed the late, well, I'm sorry, the, the Middle Ages and the impact they had. I mean, you know, from pushing the Turks further west, which eventually led to, you know, more or less, you could say the fall of Constantinople to the reconfiguration of, of Eastern Europe. I mean, they, they were up into Poland. They were knocking on the doors of Vienna. I mean, they were, it was a, an incredibly um, tumultuous time. And you can even say that the, in, the instability in the area has really been going on ever since, because there was kind of always this this brew of worlds meeting, you know, you have the, the steps, you have Europe, you have the Middle East, you have Asia Minor, and they all kind of form this, conf this confluence right here. And that's why Ukraine has been at the crossroads of history so often. Um, Father Andrei, what, what would you say about Ukraine's place and kind of as a crossroads of history, just like uh, maybe Israel has been as well being in a confluence of cultures meeting? So I would say, yeah, there's no doubt that uh, where Ukraine is located uh, puts it in the place of living as a bridge, we might say, between East and West. Uh, there's a book 
published not all that long ago um, on the history of Ukraine by a scholar at Harvard named Serhii Plohi. And the title of his book is The Gates of Europe. And I think that that title captures really some of the essence of uh, what Ukraine is uh, and that it, while it's on this bridge territory, has strong connections with European politics uh, and European cultural and social life all throughout its history. So yes, uh, in one sense, uh, it is in between. It is on the edge, we might say, of what many people think about as Europe. And so therefore it's open to the steps and to what ended up being the invasions from Central and Northern Asia uh, of the Mongol hordes. On the other hand, it's well West of the Ural Mountains uh, and its cultural and political history, and even to some degree its religious history shows how it's connected essentially with Europe as opposed to with, let's say, a Eurasian reality. Which the, you know, the Muscovy, is much more Eurasian, right? And, and, and that's something which eventually turned into the Russian Empire, Muscovy. Um, and again, the, the, you can get into the history of this and I'll put some articles that Father Andre had given to us to read and I'll put those in the show notes so you could read that so we don't have to get into the nitty gritty of history, but I think- It's worthwhile it, for, it, it for sure. Like it, yeah, and, and most of us don't know that history and, and it has been underemphasized, whether it's the Mongols or even just any form of Eastern European history. So it's really important to inform yourself because information gives way to a building of conscience and developing the energy and the passion behind solidarity. As Father Andre was mentioning, we need to act in virtuous intention toward our brothers and sisters with a discernible action. And that is the virtue of solidarity. So, you know, I, I want to just before we, we go any further, I want to thank all of our viewers and our listeners who express that solidarity with us each and every single week, and especially being a part of this show right now. So if you are on any of our platforms, make sure that you're liking and subscribing. And in just a moment, we're going to be giving you detailed information on how you can support Ukraine at this very moment through the efforts of the Knights of Columbus. And showing that solidarity of the bishops, I just want to give a warm expression of gratitude from my heart to the USCCB, my own personal bishop, Bishop Estevez, for doing a collection immediately. We did so at, our, at my parish, and we're already starting to collect goods through another, another initiative to send. And, uh, you know, there's a lot to do, but be sure that you have a role out there as well in this respective uh, initiative. If I may add just one thing uh, with respect to the topic that we're talking about, uh, I would like to underline, I think you're exactly right, that in knowing history and taking time to study and inform oneself is so important, especially in a context when propaganda is playing such a sad and outsized role. Yes. And when one studies the history and looks at the basic outline of facts, what becomes clear is that those who are the inheritors of the patrimony, we say, of Muscovy, which developed in the Northeast after the Mongol invasions, uh, are not the only ones who have a claim to the spiritual and cultural heritage of Kiev and Rus. They have a wonderful and deep heritage. There are some wonderful saints in Russian Christianity and great authors and things of this nature, but it falsifies the historical record to say that this culture, the inheritors of Muscovy have the only claim mm. or an exclusive mm. claim to that patrimony, especially when that uh, propaganda or ideology is used to justify 
an attack of war mm. against another people who has an equally historically justified claim yes. to that patrimony. Phenomenal. So I think this is a good point to transition into looking at uh, President Putin's motivation and looking at some of the historical and religious context for their propaganda and justification of their unjust invasion of Ukraine. Um, one of the things, again, that we've kind of been talking about is that Russia, who are really the inheritors of the tradition and the patrimony of Muscovy, feel that they have a right to the be the protectors of all of the world of the Kievan Rus, right? And this is concept of a Ruski Mir, right? The Russian world. And they believe, you know, as sometimes they'll call themselves the third Rome, that they are the new protectors of this whole sphere of influence. Uh, and, it's, and it's Putin's kind of irredentist motivations that are driving this. No. That Go ahead. Yeah, sure. I'm sorry. Could you, could you explain uh, to everybody what that actually means? Sure. So irredentism is kind of the concept that a country uses as motivation to invade, saying these are lands that were lost to us and they belong to us. It's the kind of thing that Hitler did in World War II, uh, saying that um, you know parts of Slovakia, well, that's the German world that belongs to us, or that's uh, you know France and Germany fighting over Alsace-Lorraine, or you know Greece wanting to have a claim to Constantinople, saying like these historical lands that are historically part of us belong to us. And, and I think that's kind of what Putin is trying to claim here with uh, Ukraine. Father Andrew, what, what are your thoughts about that? So I think uh, it is what he's trying to claim. And I think, again, part of the importance of history is to see how that claim totally falsifies the reality of history and flies in the face of the history as it actually unfolded. Uh, and that it doesn't amount to more than an ideology that is employed in order to dominate others. So what's important to understand, for example, is that when Kievan Rus was baptized, Muscovy as an entity didn't exist yet. Mm. Right? It received its Christianity from the baptism of Rus. It was one of the far Northeastern territories, uh, closer to Asia. And Muscovy as an entity didn't develop until hundreds of years later. And so for them uh, to claim that they're the only rightful inheritors of the baptism of Kievan Rus, when that was a later development, the culture around Muscovy is to, one, to falsify the early history. Two, in the later history, once the Mongol hordes came through, the development of the Northeast around Moscow eventually, and the development of the center and Southwest uh, in Galicia and Volin, as we talked about before, uh, were two different trajectories of political and social development. Mm -hmm. Eventually, yeah. they also became different trajectories in religious development, too. Mm -hmm. That'd almost be like the United States laying claim to London because they are the uh, inheritors of the English-speaking world or, or even going further back, the United States saying that we have a claim to Frisia because that is the you know, Germanic origin of it. You know, it, it's, it, irredentism has the capacity to keep going backwards and backwards to justify more and more land grabs, to say more and more belongs to us. And as an ide ideology can be very dangerous as we're seeing in this current situation. Um, and where does that, where does that end? When that, when that appetite for power, control and territorial, uh, you know, hunger and greed, where, where does that end? You well, know, typically, if it, if it typically in a burning bunker by yourself, um, you know, if mm -hmm. we look at history, it doesn't really end up well, but you know, that kind of, 
insatiable appetite to justify expansion and to justify aggression, um, it, it, you know, it's, I always say that, um, you know, the justification is the most dangerous word in human vocabulary because you can justify just about anything if you convince yourself. And, you know, ear dentist claims on lands that are not yours, you can find any sort of historical or political machination to justify that you have a right to it when you don't, where the where Ukraine is a very distinct, very unique part of the world. It has its own history, its own culture, its own people. That is not in any way a miniature Russia. It's not little Russia. It's not a satellite state of Russia. They've never really had, you know, they have a completely different trajectory in history. Father Andre, can you speak a little bit about that and what you might consider Putin's motivations, you know, both from political, historical, and religious sense as to why this is happening now. Sure. I think one thing to underline, as you guys are rightly moving toward, I think, is that part of what this ideology does is it denies Ukrainians agency. Mm. You, don't exi- you don't exist as a separate entity, mm. really. You really are not responsible and free moral agents as individuals or as a people. And therefore, you are not free from the perspective of the ideology Mm. to pursue your own destiny Mm. responsibly. How tragic, you know, and it's like, that's what I'm, I'm considering in my mind right now is just the violation of sovereignty, the sovereignty of the human person, but the sovereignty of the nation and the people. That, that express their own particular culture and history. That's something that should never be violated. I agree, both according to the standards of international law, and I think also according to Catholic social teaching, the yes. dignity of the human person and the way yes. that unfolds in society, right? And I think what we have to look at, for example, are some of the things that Mr. Putin has said. Okay, He said that Ukrainians and Russians are really one people. He even wrote an essay about that that was published a couple of years ago, which was summarily criticized as historical fiction by real historians of the area. But he wants to justify that. And to say they're one people is to say that, well, Ukrainians don't really exist because we're all really Russians. He's also denied Ukraine's right to exist as a state. And he said Ukrainian statehood is a kind of fiction invented by the Soviet regime. Well, let's think about historical precedents and what kind of actions the denial of the existence of a certain people or the denial of their right to exist as a sovereign state to what kind of actions that has previously led. It has led to atrocities. And we are unfortunately every bit on that road. And that is what is unfolding before us. When you delegitimize the existence of a people, Mm. when you delegitimize the existence of a nation, you attribute to yourself, you arrogate, the right to destroy it. Mm. And that is part of what is unfolding right now. Uh, And I think we have to be very well aware of that um, in order to understand the full implications of the denial of the existence of Ukrainian, uh, the Ukrainian people as such, as distinct, related to certainly, but distinct from the Russians uh, and also the Ukrainian state. And because that is what President Putin is speaking about in many of his public addresses, I think that helps to show the direction that this ideology, unfortunately, is pointing. Yeah. You know, how would you respond? How would you respond, Father Andre, to, you know, the concept that, um, you know, 
Putin's invasion is justifiable because of NATO's expansion and, and their reach into territories that were agreed upon as, as being a part of that uh, you know, Russian uh, control. So I'm not a political expert, and I don't want to enter too much into the politics of it. Sure. Uh, I can say it does seem to me very safe to say that the reason that NATO expanded is precisely because countries that were nearby to Russia feared aggression on the part of Russia mm -hmm. on account of the history with the Soviet Union. That's what it appears to be for me, too. And I'm, I'm certainly not anywhere. You're a lot closer to more of a political expert in history than, than I certainly am. But it, it goes back for me to that dynamism, to that dynamic nature of man's desire for freedom. And, you know, there, there has to be movement within that space and a recollection of one's identity. So many people on our show and, and people that we've connected with online come to realize their roots of their Catholic faith. And we have so many reversions to the Catholic faith or conversions to the Catholic faith that we've been experiencing week to week, month to month, year to year. And it's like that recollection of who we are as a sovereign people and, and, and celebrating that. But it's, there's also a sense of a peaceful inclusion of people that, that may come to realize the beauty of it. And it, it can never be proselytized. It can never be violently, uh, uh, you know, oppressively placed on someone to convert. It, it doesn't work. John Paul II speaks of that, about that perfectly in his document, uh, Reconciliation and Penance. You know, it has to be a conversion of the heart. And what, what I'm seeing right now is just this invasion is such a, a violent uh, taking away of the freedom of a people. Yeah, I mean, to, to, to say that Ukraine doesn't have a right to more closely ally with the West, when the history of Ukraine is very much about being at that crossroad between East and West and often of Ukraine allying with the West, again, is to deny Ukraine its uh, sovereign uh, status, where Russia says you can't join that. Well, I can do what I want. We're our own country. If we want to join, you know, the, the Southeast Asian pact, we can. We're our own country, Russia. You have nothing to say about it. Now, and it's kind of the imperialist mindset that anyone who's in our sphere of influence has to do as we say. And by even thinking that you're already trying to colonize them in action or mm -hmm. in thought, if not mm -hmm. in action. And mm -hmm. the United States, I think, should learn a lot about Ukraine because there's a lot of kindred um, emotion and a lot of kindred action between it. You know, Ukraine has been between, you know, imperialism and monarchies and empires. And it's been a history of a people looking for freedom and self-identification of their own statehood. And that's something that the United States is very much founded on as well. But for Russia to say that they can't join NATO because, well, why do you get that? Why do you get a say in that? And that that shows where Russia thinks that everyone in the former Soviet Union still belongs to them. And they certainly don't. I mean, they've been I mean, they they took Crimea and said, well, you don't really deserve Crimea because you got that from Stalin in 1954. And then uh, um, we're going to take, you know, parts of your Western border because, well, they're Russian speaking or, you know, the Eastern parts of Ukraine. Well, they're Russian speaking. Father Andrew, correct me if I'm wrong, but most people in Ukraine speak Ukrainian and Russian. Is that not the case? And to think of, you know, well, these are Russian speakers and they should then be part of Russia is a falsification. 
certainly many, many people uh, in Ukraine are bilingual. Many's first language is Russian, including the current Ukrainian president. Uh, and that linguistic lines do not indicate uh, lines of citizenship or lines of political thought. Mm -hmm. So what I mean is there are Russian speakers who are very happy that Ukraine would ally itself more with the West and seek for greater European integration. So to say that someone is a Russian speaker and therefore they subscribe to uh, the desire for a Russian domination of the region is simply false. Mm -hmm. simply false that would be like saying that the united states or canada has to ascribe to everything that the united kingdom does because we speak the same language or that mexico has to follow spain or venezuela you know it, it, language is language it's not the same as national identity um if i may add you know ukraine is a complex and diverse reality so in crimea for many many centuries have lived the crimean tartars which is a muslim population and they have also been integrated into the Ukrainian state, the contemporary Ukrainian state. So Ukraine is a diverse place with lots of different people who have found a way to start to consolidate uh, a movement toward greater integration to the West. And so the linguistic lines, among other lines, are just not adequate to understand uh, the situation. Mm -hmm. What is kind of the religious makeup of Ukraine? And I think this is a, you know, a an important aspect to bring up because again this also looks at potentially part of uh, russia and president putin's motivation for invading ukraine how does ukraine's population divide roughly in religion so i'm not able to give you percentages unfortunately but i can tell you that um, ukraine is predominantly eastern orthodox in its faith uh, although there are a significant uh, Muslim communities, as well as Jewish communities, uh, and the Greek Catholics, to which I belong. There are also Latin Catholics who are present on the territory of Ukraine, and uh, Protestant Christians as well. So Ukraine is religiously diverse. Uh, it even in recent years has organized a body um, of all the churches and religious organizations of the country that have a kind of central uh, coordinating uh, consultation in which the different religious leaders can speak with one another and help to represent the concerns of religious people uh, before the state and before the society. Uh, certainly in central and eastern Ukraine, uh, there are more uh, Orthodox than there are Catholics. And in western Ukraine, there are more uh, Greek Catholics and also some Catholics of the Latin Rite that are present. Uh, so that's the way it basically breaks down. But what I think is important also to realize is that those religious affiliations can never become a motive for war mm -hmm. and the destruction mm -hmm. of one's neighbor. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I, that once, once your ideology begins to step over that line and begins to utilize religion as a way to destroy your neighbor, it has forfeit a claim to, to Christian faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to even to reflect on some of the the religious flooding of head that has happened over the last decade there. I mean, I think one of the most important schisms that's happened in, in, in recent and modern history is the schism between Moscow and Constantinople, which again is over Constantinople's recognition of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church as it's as, as self-governing and not necessarily under the governance of Moscow. Again, it's almost the religious parallel to what you see here that Moscow in the at least in the orthodox sense believe that they have a right to be the superiors of the ukrainian orthodox church where politically russia thinks that they have a right to be 
the political masters of Ukraine. And it, there's this constant pressure. And that's all very complicated. But I think that it does. And, and, and that's why I think it. some people would say that it's a stretch, like it's a stretch to kind of tie these spiritual realities to the political realities. But it, for, for me, and, and looking at this throughout history, as well as what's being presented right now, there's absolutely spiritual resonance here. And, and I know Sheila, you and I had this, a great conversation the other day about it. You know, there is a very clear motivation here. And, and when we consider what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, we can objectively say that what you were saying, Father Andre, is like, if, if you are invading someone's sovereignty and rights, and you are acting violently to control that person, and, and subject them, even in respect to what you were just saying in respect to Moscow and Constantinople, Shia, I mean, that is objectively wrong. Yeah. Be my I brother. Think, or I'll Stuart, kill if I can, sorry, Ryan, if I can just add in real quick. Um, I think too, you know, um, the ecclesiastical question about the autocephaly of Ukraine, the Orthodox Church in Ukraine, uh, is an internal Orthodox question that it elicited a canonical debate. It also, however, on account of history, uh, and the Soviet past is not to be totally pushed aside in this, uh, has political resonances. And uh, without wanting to comment deeply on that, I think it's just worth noting that, mm -hmm. uh, and that um, the Russian Orthodox Church under the communist regime, on the one hand was persecuted, but on the other hand, had many, many compromises with the government. And that tension between the control uh, of Moscow over Ukraine uh, through even ecclesiastical ways uh, is also part of what caused the Ukrainian Orthodox Church to seek its own autocephaly. Not only its own maturity on the inside, which is often one of the criteria that the Orthodox use to grant that self-governing status, but also because uh, on account of the history that sadly played out over the 20th century, uh, there was a sense that the church maybe was not as free to develop as she would like when there was a dependence on uh, a church that had had such a close link uh, with an oppressive government structure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, um, the nature of the, the religious aspect of this is, is definitely curious. And one can't help to think that Putin doesn't see himself again in the context of being the third Rome, where the patriarch of Moscow is the new patriarch of Constantinople, and the president of Russia is the new emperor of the Byzantine Empire. It's not hard to see those aspirations, or at least make the view that that could potentially be the, the deep thought of the motivation, or at least the, the germination of that kind of overreach and that kind of desire to again be masters of the greek world I, I think it's very likely that there are parts of that that come to play now to understand a person's motivations is not something that i can really do without talking to them but i can see that as as a part of this whole conflict um actions say a I'm lot actually i'm actually going to push back on that sure please uh, and, and i don't i don't think that's quite true uh and this is the distinction that i would make uh, I do think there's evidence to show uh, that Vladimir Putin considers himself to be an emperor. Uh, 
and one who is reconstituting uh, the Russian lands as he sees them, the empire. That I do think is true. However, I think if you look at the public record of all of the various evil actions with which Vladimir Putin is reasonably tied, there is no evidence, no evidence to think that he is a sincere Christian. That's interesting. And so I think that's a very firm line that has to be drawn. Because uh, when you, again, have an ideology which justifies the destruction of people you call, quote, your, your, call your brothers or you call the same people, there is a massive disconnect. And there's a tremendous distance from the teaching of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so I think it's very important to be aware that Vladimir Putin wishes to sell himself and propagandize himself as a Christian. And yes, yes, I would agree but with that. But that is a that is a falsification of the publicly available facts. I think that's such a very valid point that you know there is no tie to any form of Christian ideology here. And when we look at the influences of propaganda that's that's present, I mean, there's some absolutely ludicrous propaganda out there where, you know, with anybody with reason is going to look at it and like, where are you coming from here? And, and, but it's influencing people. And that's this, that's the scary thing. What are some of the things that you're seeing father Andre, in, in respect to uh, political propaganda and influencing the ideologies of people? So I think it's important to highlight two major points that really put into stark relief, uh, the cynicism that's behind this. So Putin has said in various of his speeches, President Putin, that there are neo-Nazis running Ukraine, neo-Nazis. Now, the current president of Ukraine is a Jew. What he fun. is the grandson of Holocaust survivors. He was elected by a 70% majority. Mm. It's an impossible accusation. And it's meant just to, I think, confuse us in its utter cynicism. The other accusation is the accusation of genocide, that somehow Ukrainians, the Ukrainian government has been perpetrating a genocide specifically against Russian speakers. There is zero evidence for that claim. On the contrary, there is evidence for religious repression in Crimea. There is evidence for what amounts to a concentration camp. Uh, on the Russian side of the occupied territories of the Donbas, not a genocide perpetrated by the Ukrainian government. And the objective observers who are there from the outside say there is no evidence of this claim. But when you accuse those whom you are attacking of being neo-Nazis and perpetrating a genocide, you can imagine what you could justify uh, doing to them unjustly from that perspective. Yeah, it's, it's saying, well, we're heroes, we're liberators, and this country is being run. And I think I've seen things where they're drug dealers, criminals, homosexuals, neo-Nazis, fascists, just throwing anything against the wall that will stick to label them as bad people to justify this unjust Russian invasion. Uh, you know, and Ukraine in World War II saw really the worst of the death of the war. I mean, that's where you had your first um, you had your first mass killing of Jews in Ukraine. You had concentration camps. You had massive battles, massive amounts of people wiped out uh, during the Soviet era. You had whole programs where they purposely starved millions of people in Ukraine, killed millions of people by taking their land and forcibly taking the 
the wheat that Ukraine is known for, even their flag essentially is, is a, a wheat field. It's the blue sky and the golden fields of grain, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a beautiful concept. And Ukraine is known as the breadbasket of Europe. And they starved them and took that very thing that is so integral to who they are. And then again, now to have somebody accuse them of those same things that have been perpetrated to them is really, like you said, grossly cynical to take the things that they have experienced and persevered through and then try to put that back around on them like they are now perpetrating it. Number one, I think, like you said, the evidence shows that that's ludicrous, but it's also very it's nasty. just e- it's evil. Nasty. I mean, it, that's isn't that what evil does? Isn't that what is the, the accuser that what demonic influence? Yeah, does? yeah, it, it, absolutely. And it's based on a lie. That's the that is the accuser to a T. I think that's right. The territories of Ukraine, Belarus, and Eastern Poland, I think, were the most deadly place in the world in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. More people died there than anywhere else. And we know that there was also plenty of suffering across the globe in the 20th century. So just to put all that uh, into perspective. And when you dehumanize, when you demonize, when you deny the existence of another people, it opens up a very dangerous and diabolical path Mm -hmm. of justifying terrible crimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I regret to say it, but I think we are walking that path in the world today. And I pray and I hope and I hope we will act so that it is stopped. Yeah. And, and let's face it, we've been in an information war for a long time since the, the three of us have been kids. And there has been influence in history where people have, you know, engaged and entered propaganda into our into our minds. My brothers and sisters, we've been saying it all throughout the show. Study, study, get to know what actually happened, uncover the truth, pursue it and you'll find it. Knock and the door will be open to you. This is an important time for us to really take seriously what we're doing here. Yeah. And, and again, they'll use this propaganda if they are able to take, uh, you know, they'll be able to use this propaganda to hunt down and execute the leaders and install a puppet government. You know, they'll say, well, these people are guilty of crimes and we're executing them. President Zelensky and the other leaders of Ukraine. And that's a nice baked in reason for them to be able to just get rid of a problem and install a government friendly to the to Russia like Belarus is. And Belarus, Mm -hmm. there is some complicity on their part in this war, allowing Russia to launch their invasion from there. You know, and Russia's playing this uh, part as the big daddy of the Kievian Rus and Belarus is playing along. And Ukraine's like, no, man, you guys keep invading us. You keep Mm -hmm. overthrowing our government. We don't want this. We Mm -hmm. want, you know, like the Euro maiden, um, you know, the, the, the revolution of dignity. They want to be able to have self determination. If they want to be closer to the West, that's fine. That's like, it's like a jealous boyfriend saying, no, you can't date someone. You can only date me, you're mine. And if I can't have you, no one can. It's really some pretty wicked and evil stuff. But using this propaganda, again, is going to be justification to wipe out the leadership of Ukraine if they have the opportunity. I think, unfortunately, uh, that seems to be part of the end game. Uh, if the Russian attack and invasion achieves, let's say, its military goals of taking the capital. Uh, and it's a tragedy. It's it's very sad. And I think what you're pointing at is really one of the absolutely essential kernels of all of this. And that is, as I mentioned earlier, the denial of the agency of the Ukrainian people, the denial of their moral freedom and their moral responsibility. And the fact that out of the baptism of Kiev and Rus, there could also arise a people, a culture that looked more toward European values toward a free society, 
toward a different kind of integration between faith and public life than is manifested in other parts of the Eastern Slavic world. And the refusal to believe that, the refusal to accept it, and then the use of force to try to crush it unjustly. I, I just gave a talk uh, in preparation for Lent on the seven deadly sins and, you know, the examination of conscience as it relates to, you know, how, how we can really dive deep, more deeply into the movements of the heart and, and conceding our will and, and uh, you know, engaging in sinful activity and clearly like pride, envy, greed, lust for power, you know, all of these things are, are clear spiritual motivations that, that, you know, guide the human person to do things like we're seeing. And I love the, I love the quote of St. John Vianney when he expresses, you cannot please both God and the world at the same time. They are utterly opposed to each other in their thoughts, their desires, and their actions. And it's evident that these thoughts have been articulated in the, the entries of, of those letters that you were mentioning before Father Andre of, of Putin. And, and clearly underemphasized in his uh, desires, clear desires that he has, as well as his actions. And his actions are becoming very apparent right now in the world, to the whole world. And that's, and that's rallying a lot of people to express their concern. While we're having this show, I'm getting email after email from my parishioners expressing, how can we, how can we help? How can we, how can we do something? And sometimes it feels like we're helpless because we're so far away. And, and, you know, can you share Father Andre and, and I'm sure Sheil's going to share in just a moment how we can, how we can really uh, physically and, and monetarily assist, but Father Andre, can you speak to more of like a, that, that sense of solidarity and the actions of virtue and how people can mobilize and, and express that? Sure. Uh, I think, first of all, it's important to realize that beyond the questions of the religious history and the political history, Right now we're looking at an almost totally unprecedented humanitarian catastrophe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that this unprovoked war has, as of yesterday, I believe, generated already over 1 million refugees who have left Ukraine. Not to speak of the one and a half million who are already internally displaced persons on account of the Russian occupation of the Donbass in Southeast Ukraine for eight years uh, and all the other suffering that's going on. We've seen images probably if we've watched the news of the bombings of civilian areas, mm -hmm. uh, in addition to the military uh, and the conflict between the armies themselves. So it cannot be underemphasized the, the, the degree of, bigger pardon, cannot be overemphasized the degree of the humanitarian uh, catastrophe. So you have people who are stuck in the cities who soon may be running out of food and water. Mm -hmm. You have those who have fled who have fled and are internally displaced, who, for example, have gone to the west of the country and there are taking shelter and need to be welcomed uh, in the tens and hundreds of thousands and up into the millions, probably. Uh, and then those who have fled into Europe, especially into Poland, Poland yeah. which has mm -hmm. been very generous in its they response have. so far. Thanks, Peter. Um, which is great, you know, and because they have a memory, sadly, of these these kinds of realities. They know very well. They know what it is, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's eliciting that compassionate response, for which I know Ukrainians all over the world are very grateful. Um, so you just you cannot uh, oversell the degree of the catastrophe right now. Um, so I think people are looking for humanitarian aid. The war is not new. The war started eight years ago with the taking of Crimea and the Donbas. 
And it's a war that the world then chose to ignore uh, and has paid the price in a certain sense. And Ukrainians have paid the price because the momentum was allowed to build for this new and terrible invasion or this new phase of it. So we can put it that way. Uh, but even though this new phase is only about eight days old, uh, or because it's only eight days old, the structures to help are still being built, mm -hmm. right? The way people can respond is still being kind of sorted out. Uh, I will give to you, uh, and I hope you can post it for your viewers and your listeners, a link to the Archeparchy of Philadelphia, which is our head uh, diocese or archdiocese, Archeparchy here in the U.S., and they're coordinating sending funds for humanitarian aid to Ukraine. I'm glad to hear you mention the Knights of Columbus a few times. Um, and I think that uh, if they're, you know, want to look for reliable organizations who you know are going to take care of the money. Because unfortunately, also uh, in this era of social media, there can Thank be fake, unfortunately. And you need to just really use people who are trustworthy, who have built relationships already with people in Ukraine, and who you know will deliver uh, things. Uh, to the people who need them most. So apart from doing everything we can to stop the war, uh, we also need to be thinking about this humanitarian side. Yeah, I wouldn't even be surprised if Russia is putting out places where you can donate to where it certainly does not go to help them, knowing the nature of their digital uh, propaganda and, uh, and things mm -hmm. of that nature. So if you want to, um, I'll make sure that the links are below. The Archeparchy of Philadelphia, I'll put that link. And then also, if you go to catholictalkshow.com forward slash Ukraine, that'll take you to the link where you can donate to the Knights of Columbus and their fund. Either of those are going to be great resources. Uh, if you have the ability, donate to both if you can mm -hmm. and split your uh, donation to both. That way, it's taking and approaching the problem in separate ways. But it's really important to stand with these people. I mean, this is a humanitarian crisis the world has not seen in Europe since World War II. This is a very dramatic situation that has the potential to create generations worth of, of, of strife and, and, and problems. Um, Father Andrea, are you hearing anything? And do you have any maybe personal context or stories of, of the way that people are responding in faith um, and in, in heroism on the ground there. What have you heard? Because I've seen a lot of things on social media, priests saying divine liturgy and bunkers of the church um, being really inspirational over there, the, the Greek Ukrainian Catholic church um, really shepherding its people. But can you give maybe a little more context and some uh, stories that you've heard? Sure. I think um, actually one of the most compelling stories and sources is publicly available and those are the daily videos that the patriarch of our church, Sviatoslav Shevchuk, uh, is publishing from his uh, place of shelter in Kiev. And so he's giving daily updates to encourage the faithful and to spread the news about what the church is doing. And I can tell you that according to him, uh, all the Ukrainian Greek Catholic bishops have remained in their cities and at their seas. And along with them, their priests have been asked to stay. So there are priests, many of whom are married in Ukraine, who are helping their wives or children to leave while remaining to serve the people. And we're talking about in the most attacked cities, Kharkiv in the east. They've remained in Odessa, which is considered a major target in the southwest. They're in Kyiv, and these people are staying to serve their people. And as uh, our patriarch said a few days ago, you know, Sunday, it's the day of resurrection, but people cannot come to church because there's a hard curfew. You cannot go outside. So our priests will come to you. They will come to the bomb shelters. They will come to the subways. And there they will serve the liturgy for you. Go to confession, receive the Eucharist. And that is the level, I would say, and I don't want to use the term too lightly, but of heroism that we're seeing 
of a church that's willing to stay with her people. The papal nuncio who's in Ukraine and Kiev has also recently announced that he is staying in Kiev with the people of his church. And these we would think, you know, are people who let's say have the means and maybe the motive of some kind or another to leave to greater safety, but they will stay and they will serve. So I think that that uh, attributes or that points out the kind of uh, heroic service that the church is doing right now and the reason it needs our support. And I would also just add, you know, many Ukrainians are praying, believing people. And it's moving to know and to see how on social media, for example, on the things that I follow and the people whom I know, they're promoting prayer. They're promoting prayer, not only for the safety of their own army, but for the conversion of their attackers. That is a powerful witness. And I think speaks to the difference between the spirits that are moving on mm -hmm. either side of this conflict. Mm -hmm. And so those are some of the stories with which I'm familiar. Yeah, one of the things that yeah, I, I just saw... I just got a I just got a story uh, yesterday from one of my parishioners, Natalia Zuno. Um, you know, she said, I wanted to share with you in the parish ways we can pass forward to help Ukrainian refugees. I know this community is amazing. I wanted to share this post seen on our Facebook page. I know this community is amazing. Um, I also had a person contact me via messenger after my post on Facebook, transportation, help and guidance from Ukraine to Poland. I was able to help a 15 year old uh, survive and wanted to pass on the information. So she was able to get a 15 year old from Ukraine to Poland and she has Polish uh, history and background, reads and writes in Polish. And uh, you know, it, people, are, people are doing amazing things on the ground, digitally, um, you know, it's, it's happening. And that's just one example of a number of other ones that have been sent to me personally, just being in Northeast Florida, there's things happening in Cleveland, there's things happening in Philadelphia, it's happening all over the all over the world, all over the globe, especially in these United States of America. So, you know, get to know what's happening on a local level, we're doing collections for all sorts of goods. Um, and, and passing those on through a, a local who who has a unit that they're collecting all sorts of tactical gear, clothing, food, all sorts of things. So, you know, get to know what's happening. And and there is a good to social media at times, you know, mm -hmm. and and clearly it helps us to mobilize and respond to evils that we're seeing. Yeah, one of the things that sure. I saw on social media, actually, Father Andre, is something that you posted, that there's the fear that one of the targets of the of the Russian invasion for destruction could be the um, cathedral uh, in um, Kiev of St. Sophia. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and what was said about that? Sure. There was a notice put out by the head of our church, uh, which he said was based on intelligence reports. And I believe then the Ukrainian either defense uh, ministry or intelligence ministry also published later, and it was widely shared that they had heard that one of the targets uh, of the Russian bombing may be a church called St. Sophia or Hagia Sophia, uh, Holy, Holy Wisdom, which is in Ukraine. It's one of the oldest churches in Ukraine, uh, built during the time of Kievan Rus in the 11th century under one of the successors of St. Volodymyr called Yaroslav the Wise. And it's a church that has amazingly survived all of this destruction over the centuries. It survived the Mongol invasion. It survived the Soviet times. It survived until this day. And it's one of the greatest symbols, let's say, of Kievan Christianity. So it should point, I think, out how cynical the use of Christianity is in the ideology that's promoting this war, insofar as one of the possible targets, at least as far as these intelligence reports go, uh, is one of the most important churches that is a symbol of the Christianity born in Kiev. 
So on the one hand, you speak of or allege that a certain Christian and cultural unity is part of your motive for reuniting these allegedly same people. And on the other, you aim your bombs at a church that mm-hmm. is maybe the greatest symbol of that uh, Christian faith in mm-hmm. Kenya. And identity, you know, that, that identity. You know, we have to pray, my brothers and sisters. We've got to pray. And that's got to be the first thing that we do. And that prayer should motivate the virtue of solidarity, supporting, if you can, financially, the Knights of Columbus. Be sure to click on the links below to see the opportunities to give through, uh, through Philadelphia, through what Father Andre uh, mentioned before. Um, but pray for the Hagia Sophia. You know, this is, this is a lasting, you know, sacrament, you know, the church as sacrament, the church building as sacrament is, is important to realize that that is, that is an identity of a people that needs to be preserved, protected, and revered. It is a sovereign reality, and the people are sovereign, and they are under attack and, and, and clearly in need of your support. So let's take a moment and, and just offer a, a, a few seconds of silence and to offer prayer for our brothers and sisters who are displaced from their homes, those who have been unjustly killed, the aching heart of the Ukrainian people. To pray for Kyiv. To pray for a response of just men and women around the world that will stand in solidarity with the wrongs being done. To pray that the Holy Spirit would inspire leadership in the world to confront evil. And to pray for reinforcement and power for those who are on the front lines, justly defending their sovereignty that God would prosper them. Come, O Holy Spirit, and God, our thoughts, words, and actions, and our deepest desires to live that fellowship and communion that we enjoy universally in the Catholic Church. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. The Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, Father Andrew, Father Andre. Um, again, thank you for coming on. Uh, again, you know, Father Andre. Uh, you know, our family name, our shared family name, is Rus, which you know, uh, it's again, it's an interesting circumstance that this is where we mm-hmm. would end up getting to talk finally on the show. We'd love to have you back when it's uh, under better circumstances. Uh, again, thanks for letting us know about some more ways that we can help with the uh, Arch Eparchy of Philadelphia. Again, go to catholictalkshow.com forward slash Ukraine if you want to donate to the Knights of Columbus. I'll put the links on there. And make sure you share and like this video so that more people can become yeah. aware of the nuance of what's going on here. Um, Spread the word, because the thing is, is how many how many of our news feeds, even on social media or on cable network, are not talking about all of this? Like they're not giving us a clear understanding. And in a propaganda driven world, we need to be able to study. We need to be able to understand the context and make sure that you're hitting those show link notes as well. So so that you can really study and apply this to your overall understanding so that you could share that even in conversation with others. Be sure to share the show and and spread this type of material. 
Mm-hmm. And Father Andrew, would I you could add. Oh, please. I was going to ask, and I'll let you say that, but I would hope that you would close us out with a, you know, a prayer for the people of Ukraine in, in Ukrainian um, so that we can show that solidarity with them and pray for them Amen. in their own native That'd tongue. Be beautiful. Mm-hmm. Very kind. I would be glad to do that. We'll offer the Lord's Prayer at the end in, in Ukrainian. Perfect. I would just like to leave your listeners and your viewers with three final thoughts, which echo a lot of what you have said, but I think it's worth just repeating them to be very clear. Uh, One, please pray. Please pray. Uh, Your every prayer, short or long, you know, sincerely said is a contribution to peace, justice, and reconciliation. Pray together, pray individually, and the Ukrainian people, many of them are, are believers in God, and they hold on to him as a protection against injustice at this time. So please pray. Uh, The second is speak the truth. In a conflict uh, which is covered over by the cloud of propaganda as a justification, it is important to speak the truth, to inform oneself historically, to understand objectively the history of these peoples uh, and the distinctions uh, between the people of Ukraine and the people of Russia that history bears out. Uh, And so to alleviate those historical clouds is important and also to speak the truth uh, about international law and that whatever one's grievances are or perceived grievances are about the way things are, that nothing uh, like that justifies an unprovoked, uh, very large-scale destructive invasion of a sovereign nation whose borders are recognized by the international community. Three is act in solidarity. Find these ways to be supportive, to donate, to help the Ukrainians around you. Uh, I believe, unfortunately, you know, when there is a wave of hate, that, begun, that begins to cascade over a part of the world. Uh, we need to build uh, a, an opposing wave of love, mm-hmm. of charity. And those little waves can begin just at home and with our friends and neighbors whom we know who are connected to this conflict uh, and then can gain momentum so that love can conquer Amen. the hatred and the violence that has been shown. Amen. Amen. So on that note, I would be glad to lead us in the Our Father in Ukrainian. від лукавого, бо Твоє є царство, і сила, і слава, Отця, і Сина, і Святого Духа, нині і повсякчас, і на віки віків. Амінь. Амінь. Father Andre, on behalf of all of our followers, our listeners, and our viewers, thank you so much for sharing with us. We stand with you, we stand with Kyiv, we stand with Ukraine, and we stand with the history of our great union and our solidarity still today. And brothers and sisters out there, we want to thank our Patreons, our, our people who support our show. We want to thank all of our followers on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Let's share this material out. Let's spread the word. Let's inform ourselves. And let's stand in solidarity. God bless you. And we'll see you next week.